So we're continuing on with Luke chapter 22. And uh, before we begin, customarily, as you know, uh, we would start off with a video. So hopefully uh, this will work. Okay, hope you enjoyed the video. Uh, that is, uh, of course, from The Simpsons. And uh, so where am I getting at with that video? Well, let's begin. We are getting very close to the end of our Luke journey. And we should jump right into it. And so therefore, I titled this sermon, uh, The Judas Effect. Not because it's about Judas. Uh, well, even though he's the main character of this story. But we do know about him earlier uh, in Luke and in other Gospels. And you know that the other Gospels have showed some of his true colors and including this chapter. But not just Judas. We're not gonna focus on him in particular because there are other parties that are involved, right? We see the chief priests and also Jesus's disciples having this, what I call the Judas effect. Uh, we also see the temple leaders, the temple guards also have this Judas effect. So, and th so this morning, let's look at the Judas effect. And guess what? It's right in the beginning of this section, starting with the tail end of chapter 21. Why are we starting with the last four verses of 21? It's because of the mention of the Mount of Olives. We see the Mount of Olives mentioned here, and then it's mentioned later in chapter 22, verse 39. Both times, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives to pray. And both times during his prayer, he warns his disciples to stay awake so that they are not tempted to be weighed down by the Judas effect. And what is that Judas effect then? And that's what we're going to go into this morning. But then first, here's what I mean by all the structure, you know, about the Mount of Olives and the Mount of Olives. So let's take a look. If you have your Bibles with me, or you could look at the screen here, uh, let's go with Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21, verse 34 to 38. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with kerosene, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. 
and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day, Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Now, let's blast over to chapter 22 and at the end. Verse 39, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Okay. In chapter 21, Jerusalem will be judged for her disobedience and for rejecting God's Son. They will be judged for not doing what they were supposed to do. And as we explored in the previous chapters, what was that? It, they were to be a blessing to all the nations, feed the poor, feed the widows, take care of the, the ones who are exploited, and not be so consumed with idol worship, which was money. Jesus is warning the disciples to stay awake and not be consumed by the anxieties of this world, meaning the worries of the world, worries of this life, for that will open themselves up to that judgment as well. Not because they were literally asleep like, and the Romans came in. No, they allowed themselves to do what the Jews were doing. That's what sleeping means, to be unaware of what we're actually doing. And it's actually to be do doing what the Jews were doing, rejecting God, and disobeying him. The same warning is in verse 22, and Jesus, he too personally experienced this. Sometimes we wonder if Jesus really experiences uh, the stuff that we go through, like the temptations to fall asleep, to go and worry about the worries of the world. But here is Jesus, right at the doorstep of his crucifixion, facing the temptation to actually disobey God's command, to, to suffer, get crucified, and die for the world. He could have backed out a long time ago. Like, as a human being, if I was in his shoes, I might have backed out. But he also knows the power of temptation to back away and not obey God, and he also knows the consequences of backing away. Who really wants to be crucified, especially, to our, especially for our enemies? Why would anyone want to sacrifice their own lives for their enemies? But Jesus stayed awake. And what does it mean to stay awake? To continue to obey God and not fall away, fall asleep, and just go with the flow of the world. He prayed, and through prayer, he was strengthened by an angel to overcome the temptation of not backing out. So, what is this Judas effect? Well, we look at these two bookends, right? Uh, we have the Mount of Olives bookends, and these bookends gives us this definition. It's the worries of the world the anxieties of life, the desire to please people as opposed to pleasing God, is to get anxious with all that the world has to offer that we don't have yet and want. It's the worries of staying alive and be self-secure. It's the worries that causes mass panic buying, hoarding, and whatnot that's going on right now today. It's the worries of life. How are the, however, there are consequences of these worries, 
And what's in between these bookends explains these consequences. So let's move on. In verse 21, verse 1 to 2, let's begin. Now the festival of the unleavened bread, called the Passover, was, a, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Jesus and his disciples are amid Passover, celebrated by all Jews to remember the great hand of God who delivered them out of slavery, oppression, and anointed them as his people in the Exodus story. The Passover, in which their sins and all their previous generation's shortcomings of, and sins were forgiven. I'm talking about sins of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, whatnot. You, everybody that was before them, all their sins will be forgiven in during this Passover, and God will deliver his children. So therefore, the Passover was not only uh, just a remembrance. This is about a significant embodiment of who these Jews were, God's chosen people, who God renewed his covenant with his people, and who God forgave his people of their sins and delivered them out of their sins. So this Passover is the Jewish identity. And Jesus and his disciples find themselves in the midst of the Passover festival, the most important festival in all of Israel. So there are questions for us as readers who are reading Luke. Why has God chosen this date for his son to be betrayed and crucified? Because God could have chosen any date. In fact, really early in the gospel, the chief priests could have just stoned Jesus and the lawyers to lynch them. Because if you recall, Jesus, after when he read the scroll of Isaiah in the temple, he claimed that he was it, and then he accused the, the Jews of um, persecuting the prophets and killing them off. They got angry, and they almost stoned him, but he slipped away. So why cho choose this date? Why would God choose the Passover in Exodus for this, for Jesus' crucifixion and uh, his uh, subsequent betrayal? Well, let's move on. Let's take a look at the chief priests. There are chief priests and the lawyers, and we know that they're plotting in the background to get rid of Jesus because of jealousy. They can't stand people not following them, and they can't stand it when they lose followers on their Facebook page because of Jesus. Jesus is embarrassing them. They're losing followers, they're losing their revenue, they're losing their tithings because people are now following Jesus. But that's not the, really the important thing here, though, because they've always been scheming and they've always been trying to get rid of Jesus throughout the whole Gospel of Luke. Nothing new. The interesting thing to point out here, and this is what Luke is emphasizing, is that they're scheming while the Passover was preparing. In other words, these are leaders, chief priests, temple leaders. They're not supposed to be scheming and hiding in a guy's house having a slumber party, right? They're supposed to be preparing for the Passover. Of all the people that's supposed to be preparing for the Passover, you would think it's the chief priests and the lawyers who know their law very well. So here's a point that Luke is trying to make here, and I, this is what I think that Luke is trying to make here. That the chief priests and the temple leaders were so concerned about how people view them they were so concerned about the worries of this life, the worries of not getting what they want, the worries of not being popular, the, the, the way that they, they succumb to jealousy and anger, that they lose their identity. They forget 
who they were, who they are. They literally ignored the fact that it's the Passover, that they could, they, they were the leaders, the very leaders of Israel, the ones that are supposed to provide an example to, his, to their people, to God's people, to make preparations for the Passover. They're not doing it. Instead, they're having a slumber party over at a chief priest's house to see how they can betray Jesus and hand him over to death. So, let's take a little bit of a blast, for, for, blast forward to today and maybe uh, make an application right now as a pause. How about us? Do sometimes the worries of the world make us or forces us or even subconsciously make us to lose sight of who we are as Christians? Does the COVID-19, the worries of COVID-19 scare us so much to a, to a place where we become so protective and so want to save our own lives that we lose sight of who we truly are, which is God's children? And then we lose sight of what we're supposed to do. We lose sight of not being suspicious. We lose sight of not, not being angry, not being frightened. No, instead, we are frightened, we are angry, we're suspicious, we lose trust again with our neighbors, and we become very protective. Then we forget to actually care for people. Then we forget to actually say uh, love people. Instead, we become protective and isolate ourselves. Now, yes, just one caveat, we have to follow every single advice taking every advice from our government and uh, um, the community seriously. But to take it to the extreme of panic, of, f of suspicion, of accusing others, of blame, that's not Christian. And that's, my friends, we should stop. Because we are losing sight. When we are fearful of losing our lives, we are losing sight of who we are. Let's move on. <clears throat> So what happens when we give, when we lose sight of these things? What happens if we allow our desires, our protective, uh, our, our, like we allow our self-security and safety and we keep it all to ourselves and we lose sight of who we are? Well, the consequence is in verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to him to give money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to him when no crowd was present. Oh, man. Money. Here we go again with money. Judas, we know, uh, oversaw the treasury for the disciples. He, in another gospel, also noted it was such a waste of money for the prostitute to wipe Jesus' feet with expensive perfume, if you recall. So we know where Judas's concerns are, right? It's money. But in general, what happens when we continue to submit our desires and, our, and forget our priorities of really who we are living for and who we are? We get the Judas effect. Did the chief priests and lawyers experience the Judas effect? Yes, they did. We just explored that uh, just earlier. They had totally lost sight of who they were. And they totally lost sight that they were God's children they were supposed to prepare for the Passover. Judas here lost sight of who he was because of money. He was so consumed with money that he even lost sight of who he was. Both parties were so consumed with this 
that they have lost sight of who they are, but what were the consequences? Not just of who they are, but take a look at verse 3. Satan entered. Satan entered. It's interesting, right? We wonder if we ever could get you know, evil spirits to enter into us. However, it's more like allowing the evil spirit to enter us. Judas and the chief priests both allowed Satan to enter into them, to get to allow him to have a foot in the door. If we get so concerned with ourselves, if we become self-centered and becoming panicky and distrust others and forget of who we are and forgetting our mandate of what we're supposed to do as Christians, Satan takes a foot in the door and we're just slowly opening the door for him to enter, just like the just like Judas and just like the chief priests. See, when we disobey God, when we disobey Jesus on a continuous basis, we are, we are actually opening the door and allowing Satan to come in, into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. Now, some of you may say, I'm not betraying Jesus at all. But then, of course, we have to remember that we did all, each person have taken an oath to, with Jesus. And when we were baptized, when we became Christ followers, we did take an oath. And what did we say? We would lay down our lives for Jesus. Well, when we put our lives first ahead of Jesus, we are slowly letting Satan to come in to the door. Let's keep going. When at the hour came, Jesus and his disciples reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. Jesus said, he eagerly desired to eat the Passover with his disciples because it will be his last before he is handed over to suffer. Yet he also said that he will not eat it again until the Passover finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Well, since we are in Luke, we should look at where else this fulfillment pass language is being used by Jesus. And interestingly, there are, there are, there's only three other places in Luke, one being in this chapter, Later on, which we will be discussing soon, and the others are in where, in when Jesus was having a conversation with Moses and Elijah at his transfiguration. Jesus predicted that when, and then the other one was the previous chapter when Jesus predicted Jerusalem's judgment. So here, here's the Moses and Elijah verses. In verse nine, in chapter th chapter nine, verse thirty, it goes like this: Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure which he was about to bring fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, if you notice, on this slide, I included the Greek, uh, the, the original Greek uh, passage of this uh, translation, of the English translation. So this is the original Greek. And you notice that right here, oh, can I do this? Right here, oops, my goodness. Right, right below the 31, if you look at it, it says etzodon. And etzodon is the word exodus. So Jesus is saying that he will again eat the Passover once the Passover finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. 
that Jesus' version of the Exodus is completed. What Exodus is Jesus fulfilling? Is it the Jewish Exodus about, you know, coming out of Egypt or coming out of the Roman wrath or, you know, defeating the Romans and they would be free? No, because Jesus predicted this will happen uh, that will be fulfilled right here. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. So really, it's not about the Jewish exodus because the Jewish, <laughs> the Jews are not going to get out of this Roman wrath. Because if they continue on with this rejection, which they did, and it happened. At 8070, uh, the Romans just uh, mowed them down. And so their punishment is going to be fulfilled. So what is Jesus talking about with the exodus? What is Jesus' version of the exodus? Well, we have to take a look at verse 37. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. Jesus quoted Isaiah 53, what is known as the suffering servant chapter of Isaiah. So what kind of a fulfillment is Jesus referring to? Is it the Jewish exodus of freeing them from Romans who are kind of like the Egypts, uh, Egyptians? Or is it something more? And because he quoted Isaiah 53, we got to go to Isaiah 53 and take a look at what this fulfillment really means. What is Jesus's version of Exodus? Verse 12. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus's version of the Exodus is giving freedom for all who has transgressed from God. That whoever believes he's the one who the Lord has given to pay for every humanity's transgressions, they are delivered and free from the grips of death. This is the Etzeldan. This is the Exodus that Jesus is here to fulfill. So Jesus is here to give humanity an Exodus. It's whether we follow him or not is the question. Yet did the disciples understand this? Did they get it? Let's move on. The answer is no. Verse 23. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this, who would betray Jesus. And a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. What are they thinking? Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I, among you, as the one who serves, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. Interesting, right? The, the, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on, one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So why are you yelling at each other and debating who's the greatest? Simon, Simon, Satan has asked you to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. So the answer to the question, did the disciples get it? Did they understand what Jesus was talking about with the Exodus and the fulfillment? That, did they understand that, that, that he will not eat that this uh, Passover until the kingdom is fulfilled, which is very coming close, which is really coming close? No. 
Instead, what were they concerned about? Who's the greatest? Who was the one who was going to betray Jesus? Not me. I'm holy. I'm holier than thou. Everybody was arguing, and especially Peter. And hence, that's why uh, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Interesting, again, Satan's uh, name comes up. When did we see it earlier in the chapter? When we were mentioning that if we were concerned about our own things and our own desires and our own wants and needs and our own safety and forget about our mandate and forget who we are, we allow Satan to take hold and to have a foot in his door and slowly enter into our hearts and minds and our lives. Well, guess what? Look at what's happening with the disciples. Right now, they're more worried about their pride. We're more worried about who's actually betraying Jesus because they don't want to be the one who's guilty. They're more worried about who's the greatest, who's the best disciple. And Satan entered. Satan entered into their hearts. Interesting, right? It's that Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. Jesus already sees Satan entering into each one of them. And he's praying to all of them, praying for all of them that their faith may not fail. So instead of knowing what Jesus was talking about, that he is the exodus, that he is here to free them from their sin and give them the opportunity to get back into God's kingdom and be called God's children, instead they were more worried about who, who would betray Jesus and who is the greatest. To close, When we allow Satan to enter, we really lose sight of what Jesus is telling us. The truth of who we are in Jesus, the truth about what we have in Jesus, the glory that we will be sharing with Jesus, the fact that we will be at his table with Jesus gets clouded and forgotten. See, during this time of anxiety with the COVID-19, uh, my daughters that went to... Uh, we were in the car and my daughter, we were driving, I think we were driving um, my mother-in-law as well and then we were heading for a family dinner. And of course we were talking about COVID and there was, this, uh, there was a discussion uh, and uh, one of the members of the family uh, got concerned about, you know, uh, potentially um, of all the struggles and then even like the fear of dying, the fear of death kind of was alluded. My seven-year-old daughter, Annabelle suddenly bespoke out. But we have a great place in heaven waiting for us. Why do we need to worry about this virus, this COVID? It's ridiculous. We have an awesome place waiting for us. When we die, we go to heaven, right? Now, this is a theology of a seven-year-old. However, let's take this for a moment and just reflect on this. When we put so much worry in our lives, when Jesus warns us, do not let those anxieties be a burden in our hearts, he means it because we lose sight of what is waiting for us in the end. Death is merely a beginning. We have a glorious life ahead of us, a glorious body. We'll be transformed into a glorious body, like Paul would say in Philippians. And we would have, meet our God, be in his presence. No more suffering, no more diseases, no more of, of the worries of the life. We will be in his midst. Instead of worrying, instead of being consumed and, for, and losing sight of what we will have at the end, we should actually be more missional. We should actually give hope to this world. 
We should show love and joy and peace and be a good example in light of all these trials and anxieties that we as Christians can shine in this moment to actually give hope to people, to give life to people. Sure, we need to follow the guidelines we need to be aware and we need to wash our hands of course and we need to like uh, um, have create social distancing but that doesn't prevent us from being loving that doesn't prevent us of loving our neighbors we just have to be creative and not be lazy we cannot be complacent we cannot just sit at home and just shelter ourselves and thinking that and hope that everything will pass away it will pass away but we have a duty folks we have a job to do as christians and that is to provide hope joy and love to our neighbors. Because like my daughter says, why do we have to worry about death? Death is merely a beginning. We have this glorious life at the end. We will win life, like the last chapter says. Do not be overwhelmed. Do not, and it's a command, do not worry about the anxieties of life. And, there's a, and the consequence of being worrying is to allow Satan to cloud our minds, cloud our vision, of what's ahead, the glorious kingdom of God. Amen? Thank you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for reminding us of who we are. Lord, in the midst of these struggles, trials, anger, distrust, fear, anxiety, and also suspicion amongst others, Lord, help us empower us as your people to shine to shine a light of hope of love of joy of peace to this world so that they will ask us where is this hope that you find who is this hope that give who is the one who gives you this hope and we will say it's in jesus in your name we pray amen